Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the war in Ukraine. Our first speaker will be Anthony King, who is the professor of war studies at the University of Warwick in the UK. Anthony's latest book is Urban Warfare in the 21st Century, which is incredibly informative about street fighting and what it will look like in the Ukraine. There is much to learn from Chechnya and Iraq about urban war and what is necessary to win or achieve a stalemate. Our second speaker will be retired General Paul Kern and former commanding general of the Army Material Command. Critical to the success for the war in Ukraine will be logistics and whether the warring parties can resupply troops. Who better than Paul to help us understand the nature of the problem and how to solve it? Our third speaker will be Angela Stent, who is Professor Emerita at Georgetown and Director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies. She is also the author of Putin's World. I'm excited to hear Angela's reaction to Putin's decision to attack Ukraine and what it means for his continued hold on power. Angela is an expert on all aspects of Russian leadership and Putin in particular, so I can't wait. Check out last week's What Happens Next program with Nicholas Eberstadt, who discussed why he thinks North Korea will attack South Korea, and Irv Gelman, who discussed his book entitled Campaign of the Century, Kennedy, Nixon, and the Election of 1960. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right, buckle up. Let's begin with our first speaker, Anthony King. On the 24th of February, 2022, Russian forces invaded Ukraine. The initial attempt was to depose the Zelensky regime in which little military force would be required. The opposite happened. The Zelensky regime consolidated and the Ukrainian armed forces fought successfully, especially in the first and second phases. The last six weeks of fighting has taken place in and around major urban areas in Ukraine, Kyiv, Kharkiv, Mariupol and Kershon have been decisive and the Battle of Sloviansk is about to begin. Urban fighting has been at the forefront, quite in contrast with Russian expectations. The Ukrainian fighters have operated from urbanised fortresses using javelin missiles. Why is this interesting? Well, if we look at Western military history and Western military doctrine for the last century, what we find is that urban warfare, in fact, is the subordinated element of military operations. From the First World War onwards, and indeed we could trace it back before the First World War, armies sought to fight out in the field and sought to win through large-scale manoeuvres facilitated by the tank. The Battle of France would be an excellent example in 1940 where the Wehrmacht sought to punch its way through with its large heavy armoured divisions through the French and British lines and did so successfully. And this pattern of using large-scale manoeuvre in the field was a recurrent feature of 20th century warfare. The last example of this is the 2003 American invasion of Iraq, where the Americans mounted a very impressive assault on Baghdad. What has shocked the Russians is the potency of the urban defence, blunting heavy attack in the field. The lesson of Ukraine will be Western armies 
need to reverse their traditional expectation of manoeuvre in the field towards a military operation which has more in common with medieval than with modern warfare, that the siege operation to defend that fortress has taken priority over every other form of land warfare. Technology often plays a critical role in the changing nature of war. In the U.S. Civil War, Improvements in the accuracy of the rifle made defense easier and forced armies to attack in new ways. What was the change in technology that moved fighting with heavy armor in the field to urban warfare? The proliferation of long-range precision weaponry and the unmanned drone is a key enabler here in terms of surveilling and then targeting and then actually striking forces in the edges of urban areas. And this has pushed urban defence into the form. There's two other really important factors. Cities are a lot bigger and there's a lot more of them. 1960, 0.5 of a billion people lived in cities. Today, 3.5 billion There's been a massive expansion of urban areas, and they have become operationally unavoidable. Not only are weapons more lethal, more precise, longer range, not only are cities bigger, more sprawling, and more and more important, but militaries are small and getting smaller. In fact, by 20th century standards, they're tiny. In the 20th century, very large militaries don't exist. Forces no longer form fronts. Smaller forces advance into a theatre and effectively converge on decisive urban areas. Their transport nodes, critical national infrastructure, key civilian centres of gravity. In Ukraine, the combat has congregated onto key urban areas, Mariupol, Kershon, Kyiv, Kharkiv, Izium, and now Sloviansk and Sierra Donetsk. In the Battle of France in June 1940, the German blitzkrieg punctured the French front and the French government declared that Paris would be an open city. Why was Paris preserved while Ukrainian cities are turned to rubble? This is a great point. The Battle of France is an extreme example because in the Second World War, most belligerents did not concede their capital city or many other cities. The typical dynamic of the Second World War is that the decisive battle would be a massive engagement in the field, and then there would be a final battle in and around a city. So the final Armageddon at Berlin would be an example. That French example is a really pertinent one, but it's an unusual one. Typically, in the Second World War, cities did end up getting destroyed because armies did not capitulate like France in 1940. They fought over everything. A horrible paradox of 21st century warfare. You'll converge on the very thing that is valuable to you. And if your opponent seeks to contest it, you will destroy what you want to fight for. The tragedy of all warfare is ultimately Pyrrhic. As Wellington's famous phrase, there's only one thing in the world worse than a battle won, and that's a battle lost when we come to urban warfare. It's Wellington's aphorism to the power of 10. If we're going to fight a war, we need to win a war, and we need to accept that, unfortunately, the very thing that we'd like to preserve will be destroyed. The civilian population will bear, as you've seen in Ukraine, the unbelievable suffering. It's a horrible tragedy of 21st century conflict. It does remind me of ancient warfare, where 
the essential deal between combatants was the person who loses has their cities destroyed and their population enslaved. But although we all think we're terribly modern and liberal, there's many features of 21st century warfare, I think, which are closer to ancient warfare of city destruction, enslavement, and dispersal of the population. Over the past 20 years, Russia has been fighting in Chechnyan cities. Russian generals have engaged in urban warfare before. So why are the Russians seemingly so unprepared for it? The 40-mile column sitting outside Kyiv for a week was just extraordinary. One of the key things about urban warfare, especially in the attack, you need lots of fuel, lots of food, ammunition to reduce the fortifications before you can even begin to attack. That 40-mile column showed the Russians completely incapable of sophisticated, adequate logistics in the contemporary environment. Look at the Iraq invasion. They ran two divisions, 300 miles in a few weeks. Absolutely extraordinary. The defenders in urban are massively advantaged. I would say a figure of 10 to 1 is pretty plausible. And the Ukrainians have been tactically and operationally in the advantageous position. They must have created depots of supplies in the cities to be able to continue the fighting. The Americans and the British have supplied them very effectively. I mean, what levels of advice and assistance in terms of the distribution of those supplies is always the key point with logistics. It's not just about bulk, is it? It's about breaking that bulk down and getting it to the positions that you need. What will be the next critical battle in the war in Ukraine? The upcoming battle of the Sloviansk pocket in that triangle, Izium, Sloviansk, and Siviero Donetsk will be the critical battle. The fundamental question will be, who will have more military supplies? Will those two brigades holding Sloviansk and Siviero Donetsk have enough supplies to hold off the Russian divisions? Or will it go the other way and it will be tight because they've lost a lot of equipment and obviously expended extraordinary levels of ammunition stocks. Russia just retreated and both sides have time to resupply. Ukraine needs to be resupplied by NATO's neighbors. Will Russia challenge NATO from resupplying Ukraine? That rocket attack two weeks ago hit a Ukrainian base That was a depot for supplies coming in from NATO and the US. How important is Russian air superiority to preventing Ukrainian resupply? Supply lines are always in the deep battle space beyond the range of long-range missile systems. You've really got to be looking at deep airstrikes. The performance of the Russian Air Force has been mystifyingly weak. They're struggling to identify lucrative supply targets to hit. And therefore, the supplier from NATO countries has been way more successful. Is the problem that the Russian generals were just as surprised as the outside world by Putin's war plans? Did the generals think Putin was all bluster and accordingly didn't make proper war preparations? These are all absolutely critical questions. There is no doubt that the Russians thought that they would achieve their mission to depose Zelensky and put a puppet regime in place. So it was to take Kyiv. That was the mission. And it's quite clear now that they thought that they would do that by a demonstration, seize Hostomol airport, and everything would fall apart and fall into place. The Russians, the presumption that they made was the Zelensky regime would collapse. But they had no plan B. The Russians had a large force on the border from Belarus round to Crimea. 
But none of those forces were actually in assault formation, nor had they practiced or rehearsed an assault. So they were taken totally by surprise by the order after day three of, right, boys, it's an attack. We're now invading. Because plan A was coup de main plus a demonstration. Plan A doesn't work. So then it's full-on, high-intensity invasion of a sovereign territory with an effective, determined enemy. It's absolutely insane. In that first Churchill War, 1994-1995, the early weeks of the operation were a complete and utter disaster. Russian generals made the same mistake, totally underestimated the Chechen insurgents and their military capabilities. And then actually the Russians reconfigured and they fought a totally dreadful but very effective fight for the city. Now the question is, are they going to reconfigure the forces and create an effective operation in that Slovensk pocket? It is entirely possible, but I'm doubtful. It's not just a matter of an individual general. Running contemporary operations, you need a professionalized staff and an operational level that they don't have. As you think about the upcoming critical battles for the Ukrainians, the big issue is can they resupply their troops? The Ukrainians have lost an awful lot of heavy equipment. They've been attributed to a far higher level. Just through the force of attrition, the Russians could force a passage through that Slovensk pocket and therefore create that corridor of land, which is their strategic and operational aim. Can Ukraine get resupplied with heavy armor? Great question. Poland, Eastern European countries, the Czech Republic has said they'll surprise tanks. But the actual practicality of getting working tanks and crews to work them to the Slovian's pocket in the next week, I wonder whether that's possible. Your argument is that armored battles are becoming less important than urban warfare. In Chechnya, insurgents couldn't get resupplied in the cities. But here, ammunition, drones, javelins will be resupplied, and the Russians lack sufficient troops to win a siege. Anti-tank weapons don't seem difficult to supply to defeat that assault. They're going to need more than N-laws and javelins. You're going to need armed UAVs, deep strike aircraft, guided multiple launch rocket systems would be great, but I can't see them being provided. So the logic of the castle has been forgotten in 20th century, but that is the logic of the castle. It's not that you can't take a castle. It takes time for a field army to reduce it. The opponents have time to build up their own field army and to degrade and then defeat that attacking force. If you turn Sloviansk and Syriodonetsk into old-fashioned medieval castles, they buy time. And that could be enough to shift that balance in combat power, not tomorrow, not next week, but if those fortresses hold in two weeks' time, that could be quite significant. How many Russian soldiers have been killed and injured so far? And at what point will that become critical? Russian casualties are pretty high already. My guess is the Russians have lost 1,000 troops a week killed. If you take 1,000, that's four, 5,000 wounded. So we're six, seven weeks into the campaign. I think they've lost 7,000 soldiers killed, probably 30,000 wounded. It's a huge number, and every week that will become more. So then you get also the supply of human capital your actual soldiers, and I think that will come important as well. Russian army personnel are estimated to be 250,000. Well, 30,000 wounded and 7,000 dead 
and that's 15% of the entire army destroyed in seven weeks. This rate is unsustainable. There's a myth about combat effectiveness, where everyone's fighting till everyone gets killed. It never happens. What happens is armies can take about 30% casualties, and then they can't go on the offensive. If a unit or a formation takes about 30% casualties and takes them quite quickly, like they have in Ukraine, you stop being able to attack. And sometimes 30% casualties are enough for an army to utterly collapse. You think of the political discussion over lost service personnel in Iraq and Afghanistan, about 5,000, over a 10-year period. A tiny percentage of the force stretched over a decade. But what you're looking at here is 15% of the force potentially has been killed or wounded. It's absolutely massive. And as I say, once you get up to about a third, you just can't get an attack together. This battle for Slovian's pocket could really be the last throw of the dice. Can Ukraine benefit from untrained citizen soldiers like in Chechnya? I'm skeptical. I was surprised that the Zelensky regime gave out Kalashnikovs to every citizen in Kyiv because that just was dangerous. It made everyone a target. If you've got an armoured column coming down the street or a major attack, a load of unorganised, untrained civilians with Kalashnikovs are just a hindrance to the organised defence force. The next phase will be decided by the regular Ukrainian army, not partisan war. You need it organised into sectors which are controlled by companies and platoons to make it effective. You're going to need sophisticated long-range weaponry, the N-laws and javelins whose range is 1,000 metres. So you need to combine those with the deeper strike weaponry. Well, a citizen militia ain't going to do that. You need an organised force which is commanded properly. A general partisan uprising... I don't think it's relevant. The only thing it will do is get a load more civilians killed. How well can the Ukraine army command a defence of Slovyansk and Severodonetsk? That, for me, is the key issue. And if they can connect those two fortresses, creating kill boxes between them for their air forces or their long-range artillery, that presents a difficult problem. A double fortress presents a difficult tactical problem for Russian generals. A few years ago, General Stan McChrystal spoke at my book club, and he described his war room looking sort of like Michigan Troll for the Apollo program. There's a big screen. He can speak directly with soldiers in the field while hearing and seeing the battle live. Fantastic technology. And above ground, there are layers of airplanes that can participate in the battle as needed. And when you combine capable and effective central command with decentralized, empowered soldiers and air superiority, it's very powerful. Yeah. But the Russians seem to have none of these advantages. The Russian generals are inferior to McChrystal. They lack the drones and are on the blind during the battles. They do not have air superiority, and their weaponry is less advanced. Air land integration became very important. And the U.S., masters of this. They're so far ahead of every other nation in terms of what you described in McChrystal. The capabilities of commanders and headquarters to coordinate highly complicated multi-layered air operations, that's difficult, but then to integrate them with what's happening on the ground. It's a very challenging thing. To actually run an effective 
interstate war. You need to gain air superiority. And then for an attack to be successful, there needs to be a complete fusion with a suite of airplanes spread out across their altitudes into what the ground forces are doing. To reduce the Slovyansk pocket, that's what the Russians would need to do. They seem incapable of coordinating strikes from the air, and that makes life difficult. Now, there is an operational issue here. The Russians did themselves no favours at all. They attacked across a northern, eastern and southern front. They've distributed their forces so widely. They have so much airspace to have to deal with they seem incapable of having concentrated their air assets, their surveillance assets, their targeting assets on one particular area. They won't remotely get close to what McChrystal was able to do. It's not just a question of the quality of the individual generals. What seems at fault with the Russians, the horsepower of their headquarters seems way too low for 21st century military operations. They just haven't got the sophistication in terms of planning and execution to deliver a full-dimensional, deep, close rear battle at the same time, in stark contrast to the US, who have become the masters of that kind of operation. There's a chapter in your book that wars fought over the internet with Twitter and the global media. Russia seems to be badly losing the global media war. Every day, there are new photos of atrocities. On the other hand, Putin seems to be winning the battle over hearts and minds in Russia, where his popularity has been increasing during the war. What's happening? Information warfare should never be separated from the reality. And I absolutely disparage all commentators and all generals who somehow say the narrative is the important thing, that the information is the important thing. False. Reality is reality. But in warfare, we can amplify reality to encourage our supporters and discourage others. What happens in the 21st century, information is resonant among particular populations. We see that a battle at one site, Kiev, Mariupol, Kharkiv, resonates across an urban archipelago attracting, encouraging, recruiting political, ethnic, racial, aligned diasporas across that urban archipelago. The Ukrainians have essentially recruited Ukrainians overseas and Western populations very effectively. The Russian people have a social commitment to Putin. Therefore, they accept the propaganda. We can disparage what he's done, but we should also totally understand the point of this war, that Ukraine is strategically vital economically in terms of industry, but also grain, and it gives Russia access to the Black Sea fleet in Crimea. Russia already has the Black Sea warm water port in Crimea. What if they won by turning this industrial base and agricultural empire into rubble? If the 21st century is about the value of its people, why are they killing them or making them flee? At the beginning, they thought they could take over it really easily. Putin was worried about the Kiev regime becoming part of EU. Although he had Crimea, if Ukraine is actually in NATO, NATO forces are 60 miles from his strategic naval base in Crimea. That's unconscionable. 
because it's not a holdable port. The Russian public are very well aware of the importance of Ukraine to the sustainability of the Moscovite regime and to Russia. And so therefore, at a political sense, they agree that Ukraine should be part of Russia. If the polls to be believed, his support is very strong. Pre-existing social commitments and war, what happens is those solidarities solidify. And that's what I would say is happening with the Russian population. What happens next with the war in Ukraine? It depends who wins the battle of the Slovyansk pocket of where the politics will be. But even if Ukraine did repel the Russians a second time, they're going to have to accept that Russia keeps those districts of Donetsk and Luhansk that it already has. It will keep a corridor through Mariupol down to Crimea, and it will keep Crimea. And the flip side of that is Russia will be forced to recognise an independent Ukraine and an independent Kyiv regime at this point with Zelensky as president. And here's the kicker. That regime would be non-aligned and neutral and that it would not join NATO and it would not join the EU, but it would enjoy good relations with NATO and privileged trading relations with the EU. But if you go for anything else, either throwing Russians back to their pre-2014 borders or insisting that the Kyiv regime joins NATO, even though Putin's driven Kyiv towards that goal and driven the West towards that goal, I think you'll end up with a sort of Korean standoff that it will just go on for years until finally, three years later, everyone goes, yeah, okay, let's just accept the status quo. What I think is truly tragic and absurd is that Putin probably could have got his war aims without war. Why didn't Putin bluster until he got what he wanted? Yeah, of course, totally insane. He probably couldn't have got a corridor to Mariupol, but Mariupol is now ruined that's going to cost him billions of dollars to reconstruct. He's taken his regime on a completely ridiculous campaign, which he'll end up with a little bit better than he had before this appalling cost that he's inflicted. I thought, oh, he's never going to evade. He's not that stupid. The most he'll do is a small operation around the Donbass to make a demonstration, give Ukraine a bloody nose, and then get a deal that he wants. I mean, I've been amazed by it. Obviously, I was naive. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Anthony, what are you optimistic about in this war? Russia will be seriously chastened by the experience. It's completely united NATO. It's demonstrated that raw land power is real. Air power and sea power is absolutely crucial, but you can't do without an army. The Germans have increased their defence spending. Finally, the British Army, which has been in an appalling state, is starting to take land warfare seriously again. The problem is six million refugees are suffering. The cost is appalling. But there is a real salutary, important lesson that's really beneficial to the West to learn. Thanks, Anthony. Let's move now to our second speaker, retired General Paul Kern who is the commanding general of the Army Material Command. The big topic in Ukraine is logistics and the ability to resupply the Ukrainian army. Go ahead, Paul. I am glad that people are paying attention to logistics and its impact on warfare. But it's something that is a strength of the U.S. and a failure in Russia. Where do we Americans excel with logistics 
that separates us from the other great military powers? Number one, almost all of our wars in the last hundred years have been overseas from the United States. First, we have to plan how to get there. And then once we get there, we have to plan how to support ourselves in that new location. Could be in the Pacific, could be in the Atlantic. We don't know. Second part is that you need to look at the structure that we put together. We have a whole command called TRANSCOM that's nothing but logistics. That's a major command, just like CENTCOM is for the Middle East or UCOM is for Europe. Third, and maybe the most important, is our logisticians in the U.S. have an ethos that says we will not let the warfighters fail. In the past, when people have run out of bullets or fuel, that's been something which we learned the lessons the hard way. We just have said we're not going to do that again. We don't fight wars with contiguous countries like Canada. What advantage does that have for Russia, given that it lacks logistical capabilities? One of the principles of warfare that gives you an advantage is interior lines. The border that they have is contiguous to the place they're fighting, so they don't have to cross into enemy territory in order to support They own it. It should be a significant advantage for them. And Belarus, I consider, an adjunct to Russia itself. No different. So the interior lines applies whether they're in Belarus or in Russia. The Ukrainians are resupplied by NATO, which has a continuous border in Eastern European countries. How will the Ukrainian resupply work, given that it is a war zone and its resupply lines are being harassed by the Russians? I think you've already seen that. One of their first attacks was on the major airport outside of Kyiv. Russia assumed that they could take that down and it would give them the advantage. They didn't expect the fight that they got when they were there. And they also then had a long line back to the border to keep it supported. But the advantage of the interior lines applies to the NATO border countries. And we have been able to conduct resupply through those borders. That does not stop Russia from attacking, as we've seen they have done it. In Ukraine, does resupply accomplish by rail, truck, boat, or air? The answer is by all. Rail is the way the Russians prefer to do it, but rails are easily defined and attacked. Road networks, you have to plan for convergence of those intersections. And C, with the exception of Odessa, Russia has managed to block off most of the sea lanes into Ukraine. But you don't choose one. You choose as many as you possibly can. Sometimes we do it by airdrop. Can you get significant amounts of material dropped by air, or is that too limiting? No, we do it all the time. We have aircraft designed to refuel from the air, and we also have rotary aircraft that can go anywhere. They can sling load supplies as well as carry supplies internally. It's an area which we plan for multiple avenues to support operations and not just one or the other. But air is a very significant part of it. President Biden made an announcement that he was not going to engage U.S. troops in the war zone. Who will be flying those planes? We can bring the supplies in to those countries and then have Ukrainians come in and pick it up so we avoid mm-hmm. entering into the war zone. What caused Russia's 40-mile supply column back up? I was very surprised that they would get themselves in that kind of a position. Now, when you have a column of armored vehicles and then you have wheel vehicles behind it, In the conditions that they were seeing in the winter, even on hard surface roads with icy conditions, you have problems. And the same thing is true on the muddy roads that they got stuck in. Tracks have a better capability than wheels in most cases. 
but they were getting all of them stuck. It was very poor planning and using the transportation routes. It didn't appear to have any alternatives that would have alleviated some of those problems. I can add to that uh, the great fighting that the Ukrainians conducted against these lines. They saw that as a vulnerability and they attacked it. What happens to an armored column that is under attack that is literally stuck in the mud? They are predominantly stuck because the conditions off the roads were very muddy. And once you run a few track vehicles through, you make it worse. And then the wheel vehicles find it impossible to get through. So finding a different route out of the road was a challenge. The Russians have retreated back home to resupply. Will they improve their logistics on the reentry into Ukraine? The answer is yes, but I also expect the Ukrainians to be better as well. They have learned lessons at the same time. The terrain is very different in the east and the Donbass region all the way down to Crimea, which I think they're going to try to link up there. It's an area which the Ukrainians have been fighting in, a contested area for many years now. So they know the terrain and how to fight in that area. Both sides will be learning from the past. And it's a different terrain in terms of being stuck on single roads that the Russians, I'm sure, will avoid. But at the same time, it opens up other vulnerabilities from different modes of attack. You mentioned the problems with icy roads and mud. And we're now in mid-April, and the weather will be improving. Does warmer weather improve the attacker's supply lines? Yes, it will. It gives them some advantages. We expect that once you get out of the thaw, it's better. But they still have rain to deal with. The Dnieper River creates one big boundary that they have to deal with. And those are the things that all military planning considers. Weather is always, but the other is the mission enemy, the troops, the terrain, all have to be considered in the time you have available. Experts have said that the two things that the Ukrainians most desperately need is more ammunition and more armored vehicles. Is that something that's easy to resupply? Well, supply chains are always a challenge. I take nothing for granted. Ammo is heavy. They need ammo, fuel, water, medical supplies. All of those have to be accounted for in this next phase on both sides. It's seen what their consumption rates are, and they should know better as they plan for the next phase. Who has the edge with logistics? Russia has a long supply line which has not been attacked behind it. And that supply line remains intact. Whereas Ukraine has been under constant attack for some years now. So their supply lines have been broken up and they know how to fight through it. But it's still under attack while Russia's supply line is not. Can NATO help Ukraine with logistics planning? and execution. They've been studying Russian vulnerabilities for some time now, and NATO has been giving them insights into what the Russians are planning to do, and they have an opportunity to be forewarned and not be surprised, and therefore that gives them an advantage as well. Russia has been unable to achieve air superiority. How important is it for resupply and logistics? Well, in modern warfare, you look at it from a combined operations, air, land, and sea. And on land, you use indirect fires, missile fires, all the capabilities, and you provide air defenses. It's an integration of all of these capabilities that gives you the real advantage. Russia has not been able to do that. In previous, earlier battles inside Ukraine, prior to 2014, they were pretty good at it. They seem to have failed to learn their own lessons. Are both sides using drones? 
Russians have significant amount of drones and have used them very effectively. And Ukraine has also now, with support from NATO countries, been able to use drones effectively. And we're giving them new capabilities. We'll call them the suicide drones that can loiter and attack their columns. It's been 20 years since the Iraq war. How has technology changed the nature of war since then? Armor today is much more capable. The vulnerability, as you've noted, has been the top attack, and that's been one of the real keys to both the Javelin and the N-Law that the UK has provided to use top attack, which is the weak point against armored vehicles. We have significant air defenses, very clever radars that we can use to track and move our weapons to follow, but they also can be jammed. And so electronic warfare is a modern part of the battle as well. It's always been there, but it's significant in today's battles. Then the other capabilities we have, which have been a challenge for Russia, has been modern communications. And we use very different communications. Satellite observance, satellite both for reconnaissance and for communications, is a new factor in warfare that has been around for a while, but is a big player in today's wars. NATO is considering giving advanced equipment to the Ukrainian army that is untrained in using them. Can the Ukrainians be properly trained to use these weapons? Well, one of the things you've seen is there's a transfer of the S-300, which is a former Soviet air defense system, to Ukraine. We're giving Ukrainian systems that they know how to employ. So we're trying to not give them something that they've never seen before, but we also have bought training for things like the Javelin and the Enlaw to them. How do you see this war playing out in the next few months? It's going to be ugly. It's going to be lessons learned on both parts. It's going to be a continuation of civilians caught in between. We've always concerned about the use of chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. That escalation would be a major turning point, which would really put us on the edge of a major long-term war. I don't think Russia is going to be able to just walk in and defeat Ukraine very rapidly. We've heard estimates of 7,000 Russian soldiers killed and 30,000 wounded, which is about 15% of the active soldiers. How does this affect their fighting force? Anthony King says a unit with over 30% casualties is incapable of offensive actions. Logistics has to account for casualties by providing medical resources and evacuation of personnel, and then you have to reconstitute units which are below the 30% reduction. The logistics plan is how do you reconstitute and evacuate casualties and equipment, rebuild, and get it back into the fight. Ukrainians have untrained volunteers. How can these volunteers help? It is difficult to get people to be fully trained in a short period of time, but they can become effective. And we've seen that during World War One, World War Two. Training can be done in a very quick, rudimentary way when you have to prepare people for casualties. It's hard to train for that. And that's why we make our training very stressful. We want to induce those stresses in people before without hurting them. But the mental stress has a way of replicating some of those experiences. What about using untrained volunteers to assist with logistics away from the battlefield? Absolutely. If you go back and look at World War II, That's what we did. We took people who had the capability in their commercial jobs, and that's the jobs we aligned them with in the military. Not 100%. That's what our goals were, to do that. So you take advantage of that. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Paul, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about Ukrainians. 
They have shown a will to fight. They've shown a capacity to fight a superior technically and by numbers force and win. I'm just absolutely positive that we'll see that to continue. And I expect Russia to continue to suffer because of it. Thanks, Paul. Let's move to our final speaker, Angela Stent, Professor Emerita at Georgetown and author of the book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Go ahead, Angela. I have four questions and answers about Putin. Question one, why did Putin invade Ukraine now? He believed that Zelensky was moving against Russian interests and was mad that Zelensky hadn't been willing to make peace on Putin's terms. Secondly, he thought the US was weak. He looked at the disastrous exit from Afghanistan our polarized politics and thought that the U.S. was too distracted. Thirdly, he thought the Europeans were too distracted. The Germans were going through a new coalition. The French were in the lead up to the election. Britain was preoccupied with Brexit. He just did not believe that the Western alliance would impose really tough sanctions on him, that there would be no unity on that. His invasion was based on a number of serious miscalculations. Number one, The Russian army isn't as strong as he thought it was. Secondly, the Ukrainians fought back instead of collapsing in 72 hours. They're well-trained and they are fighting for a cause, whereas Russian teenage recruits don't even know why they're there. Another miscalculation was transatlantic unity. The Europeans stepped up to the plate. They joined the United States in presenting a united front against Russia, and the Japanese, the South Koreans, and other Asian countries did as well. And... They imposed very tough sanctions on Russia. Where are we now? The Russians were unable to take Kiev, which they thought they were going to take in 72 hours. They've now retreated, and they're focusing on the southeastern Donbass region. They've completely decimated Mariupol, the port city where allegedly they used some chemical weapons. And they have managed to cut off Odessa from the rest of Ukraine. The Ukrainians cannot export their grain, not because of sanctions, but because the Russians have cut them off. Putin would like to announce on the 9th of May, Victory Day, that he has had a major success in Ukraine and that they've taken back the Donbass. Let's see whether he is able to do that. We have a united West. Yes, the US, Europe, and our Asian allies are together on imposing sanctions, but the rest of the world is not. It's not only China, it's India has refused to condemn Russia to join sanctions. Other major countries, South Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, Mexico, Brazil, countries in Southeast Asia, in Africa, none of them are willing to condemn Russia. And those countries, if you look at the UN votes, represent more than half of the world's population. The best outcome would be a negotiated settlement. However, I do not believe the Russians are at the moment interested in a negotiated settlement. But if they were, the Ukrainians have said that they would give up trying to join NATO, but they would want security guarantees from the West. They've said that they're willing to discuss the status of Crimea and of the Donbass with Russia. But the condition for making these concessions is for Russia to withdraw at least those troops that invaded on the 24th of February. We have had no sign from the Russians of any concessions that they would make. 
If there is no negotiated settlement, this war can continue for a long time. It can be a low-level, if you like, war of attrition. It could also escalate. We've had signs of a possible use of a chemical agent. Putin has also threatened to use nuclear weapons. They're not off the table. Once the U.S. and NATO will have permanent troops on the eastern frontline states, Putin's also achieved what he always wanted to prevent. Finland and Sweden are now apparently poised to join NATO, something that they refused to do for the past 70 years. Why is China supporting Russia in this Ukraine war? Even though the Chinese have very significant economic interests in the relationship with the West, with Europe and the US, and not with Russia, they won't join in condemnation of that because they still see an authoritarian Russia as their partner pushing back against US and Western hegemony. I'm confused by India's neutrality. I thought India joined Team USA. What happened? India has their own concerns about China, Chinese-Pakistani relations. And so they see Russia as an important balancer against China. They have a tradition during the Cold War of being neutral and a lot of suspicion of the United States. In large parts of the rest of the world, a lot of this is determined not because Russia's great, it's their suspicion of the United States, resentment against the United States, and hypocrisy. They will point to Vietnam, to Iraq, to Afghanistan. Do you think Israel's more neutral policy relates to its large Russian Jewish population in Israel or the risk that Israel may need to evacuate the Ukrainian Jewish population? Or is it its desire to work with Russia in Syria and Iran? Israel has finally come and it did vote to oust Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council and it has condemned Russia, but it's not joining the sanctions. Their major concern, it's Iranian activities in Syria and without cooperation from Russia, they can't fight back against Hezbollah. The domestic population is extremely complicated. Natan Sharansky, the famous Soviet dissident, he has condemned his government for not doing more because he's always been very anti-Putin. Avigdor Lieberman, who comes from Moldova, has had a very cozy relationship with Putin, and he won't criticize Russia. So I think it's 3 million former Soviet Jews that live in Israel. There's no unanimity on this. And then there are the business ties. These wealthy Russian Jewish oligarchs have ties with Israel and the Putin regime as well. Memories of the way that Ukrainians treated Jews in the past isn't very good. As the Israelis say, Russia's like a neighbor, has enabled Israel to carry out all kinds of strikes against Hezbollah and Iranian-backed forces in Syria that are threatening to Israel. What about the developing world? None of the BRICS countries have condemned Russia, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Mexico, do you know that after the war broke out, the Mexican parliament formed a Russia-Mexico friendship caucus? Brazil, Bolsonaro feels that they've been neglected by the Biden administration. The attitude towards the United States is clearly not what it used to be. Why did Western analysts and their political leaders underestimate the risk of war in Ukraine? Most Western analysts, and I would include myself, looked at Putin's previous behavior. The grievances he's had against Ukraine, against the West, they've been on display since 2007 when he made his infamous speech at the Munich Security Conference. And he's always said what he said about Ukraine not really being a real country. In 2008, Russia went to war with Georgia, but they didn't go to Tbilisi. They didn't take out President Mikhail Saakashvili, whom they loathed. In 2014, they took Crimea in a bloodless coup, if you like, and then they started 
started the war in the Donbass region, but it was limited. Most people thought that what Putin was going to do was to take more of the Donbass, what the Russians are trying to do now. Most of us realize that Putin is now a much greater risk taker than he was eight years ago, and it doesn't have this kind of pragmatic sense of where to stop. Putin made a speech at the outset of the war in Ukraine. What did you make of Putin's justification of the invasion? He seized on this Nazi trope because that dehumanizes the Ukrainians. It's just like World War II. We're going to get rid of those Nazis. The other part of his speech was to essentially say it's the United States and NATO that's backing these Nazis, and it's using Nazi Ukraine as a platform to either invade Russia, to threaten it. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov said, this isn't really a war about Ukraine. We're at war with the West, with the United States, which is the way that they see it. Why is Putin's popularity increasing during the war. So for most Russians, it's becoming increasingly difficult to have access to other sources of information. And they're just seeing state-run TV 24-7. We're fighting the Nazis. We're winning. The massacre in Bucha, it's done by the Ukrainians themselves or fake actors. Russia is only targeting military targets and everything else is fake. A lot of the recruits come from rural parts of Russia and they're particularly badly informed. You've explained how the war in Ukraine is in Russia's interest. But why does it make sense for Putin personally? Putin's done pretty well out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, if you look at how much wealth he and his comrades have accumulated. He would show up to world meetings, and he's an impressive, strong man. He rebuilt the Russian economy. He seemed to create stability there. And everyone thought he's an autocrat that we can do business with. How did Putin miscalculate the extent of the sanctions? He thought that the sanctions that would be imposed on Russia would be similar to those in 2014. There'd be sanctions on banks, some individuals, but he did not believe that the Europeans would agree to these full frontal financial sanctions. The export controls are affecting their ability to get spare parts, to fly their planes for their entire industrial base. He was an intent on this invasion, and he thinks that Russia can weather these sanctions, but... It's going to be hard to see in the longer run how they do. Do you agree with the political scientist John Mearsheimer, who believes that U.S. actions to expand NATO encourage Ukraine to join EU and set off the war? Yeah, I'm afraid I don't give very much credence to it. NATO expansion is not what has caused this. The West is not responsible for this. Putin's desire to get back these lands has existed from the time that the Soviet Union collapsed and he lost his job as a KGB case officer. Before 2014, a majority of Ukrainians did not want to join NATO. Ukraine had neutrality in its constitution. In the last year since the annexation of Crimea, the Ukrainians changed their mind on this. Where I would fault the West is in 2008, when there was a NATO summit, and the Bush administration did push a membership action plan for Ukraine, and the Germans and French were adamantly against it, they had a compromise communique which said Ukraine and Georgia will join NATO. Ukraine was not on any track for NATO membership. It is in black and white on that communique, and that was very much a mistake because it provided something for the Russians to seize on. On May 9th, Putin will celebrate Victory Day for the war in Ukraine. What will Putin say he won? Maybe by May 9th, they can say we took Mariupol, more of the Donbass, cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. We've won. He can't go back and say we've denazified the country because Zelensky's still in power. And denazification was a code word for regime change in Kiev. But he could present a territorial gain for that. What insight do you have on the Ukrainian refugee crisis? 
he thought that creating refugees would destabilize Europe. If you have large numbers of Ukrainian refugees living in different parts of Europe and integrating into Europe, you could get a European body politic that becomes even harder in its views of Russia. What happens next with China and the Ukraine war? So far, the Chinese have continued to back Russia. They repeat all of the Russian tropes, including what happened at Bucha was either done by the Ukrainians or actors. China always used to say, we don't believe in solving things through violence and military means. And they're not saying that very much anymore. Major Chinese banks are complying with the sanctions. We'll have to see how much the Chinese help the Russians evade sanctions going forward. For Xi Jinping, the relationship with Vladimir Putin is very important. He's a fellow authoritarian leader who's increasingly dependent on China. If China really wants to push against an American-dominated world order, he needs Putin. The February the 4th declaration that was signed between Putin and Xi Jinping in Beijing, it said it's a partnership that knows no limits. It's better than an alliance, right? I end each episode on a note of optimism. Angela, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the way that Europe and the Asian allies have responded to this. We just hope that as the sanctions continue to affect us, that we can keep that unity and that solidarity of purpose there, because that will be important. Putin will demand an end to sanctions as part of any settlement negotiation. What happens next? Well, he's only going to get sanctions lifted if the Russians do what they promised to do. It's incredibly difficult to lift U.S. sanctions, particularly if the U.S. Congress has anything to do with it. Since you predict that neither side wants to negotiate, do you see a long, protracted war? Yes, it's going to continue for a long time, or at least as long as Putin's in the Kremlin. We don't know how long he'll be president. Thanks to Anthony, Paul, and Angela for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Tom Sankton, who is the author and research professor at Tulane, who has a new book entitled The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire. The book is amazing, fast-paced, and a joy to read. It's an incredibly fascinating true story about the kidnapping of one of France's leading industrialists. Our second speaker is Mitchell Schwartzer, who is a professor of architecture and urban history at California College of the Arts and the author of Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. I'm personally very interested in urban economics and how new cities develop and grow. If you missed last week's program, check it out. We had Nicholas Eberstadt on the upcoming war between North and South Korea and Irv Gelman on the 1960s presidential election between JFK and Nixon and who actually won. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.